Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 3rd, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, the oldest player in the Big 3 3 3-on-3 basketball league, about why he keeps playing and about his protest of the national anthem which began two decades before Colin Kaepernick took a knee and continues to this day. We'll also speak with Golden State Warriors President Rick Welts about his tenure with the team and how his life has changed since his decision to come out in 2011. And finally, Slate staff writer Henry Grabar will join us for a conversation about the best and the worst stadium deals in the United States. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside, which we'll get to later. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Josh. So we're recording this podcast in the interest of transparency in advance. Uh, we didn't feel like working on July 3rd, but we felt deeply in our hearts that we wanted to provide you with entertainment for the Independence Day week. So here we are. That's not true. We wanted to work on July 3rd, but it's a Slate holiday, so nobody could record the thing. F- fair point. Um, we were dying to work on July. We would have worked on July 4th. All right. Prove it. Can't. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, Unprovable. I'll be here to look out for you. Also, listeners, if future you wonders why it sounds like Stefan is on Skype for our third segment... That's because Stefan is going to be on Skype for our third segment. So congratulations on your correct intuition there. Bonus segment for this week's show. We are going to talk about the aforementioned Wild and Outside, Stefan's book about the Northern League. We alluded to it a little bit last week, and we're going to have a fuller conversation about what um, it was like for Stefan to write that. Because I'm really looking to juice book sales <laughs> for Wild and Outside. More information on that later. If you want to hear that, please join Slate Plus for just $49 a year, and you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. In the first game of the inaugural weekend of the Big Three, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf scored eight points for the three-headed monsters in their 62-60 win over the Ghost Ballers. Abdul-Raouf, who was the last pick in the Big Three draft, is the oldest player in the league at age 48. He had his best season in the NBA 21 years ago with the Denver Nuggets when he averaged 19 points and seven assists a game uh, and led the league by shooting 93% from the free throw line. 
That was also the year he was suspended by the NBA for one game for his failure to stand for the national anthem. Back then, he said the flag was a symbol of oppression, of tyranny, adding, I don't criticize those who stand, so don't criticize me for sitting. I won't waver from my decision. After that suspension, he reached a compromise with the league where he stood and prayed during the Star Spangled Banner, a posture he maintained at Barclays Center on June 25th before the first ever Big Three game. Joining us now is the man Ice Cube recently called his favorite player and was my favorite player growing up as a kid in Louisiana, Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Before we get to the meat of the discussion here, I do just want to thank you because we've talked about this on the show before, but when you're like nine or 10 years old, that is really the time when you form the kind of bonds with athletes just as a fan that last for life. And you were my favorite player um, at LSU. Watching you play was some of the most enjoyable experiences I've ever had as a sports fan. And when people said, oh, Phil Jackson, like comparing Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf to Steph Curry, like that's ridiculous. Like people like me who <laughs> watched you at LSU and with the Nuggets, we understood what he was talking about. So I just wanted to express my appreciation for all those great uh, experiences you gave me as a kid. No, thank you. It means a lot to me. Um, so let's talk about the big three. Um, as I said, you're the oldest player in the league. You've kept in the gym. There were a bunch of older guys who went down with injuries in the first week, but not you. You seem like you're still in great shape. How are you feeling after uh, you know the first game back in your professional career? Well, let me start by saying in your intro, you mentioned that I was the last pick. You know, we got we still got a lot of pride as athletes. I wasn't <laughs> the last pick. <laughs> I was, it was somebody else. There, there was a few more after me. Oh, okay, my <laughs> but, bad, my bad. But no, 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 no. But anyway, uh, I feel great. I'm, I'm in the gym every day, and I train every day. The weights and basketball, but it's different when you start competing on a level where you're going back to hand checking. It's kind of like going through the NBA. You spend your your summers training, but when you go back to training camp, you know now the preseason starts. That preseason is a time to get the kinks and the rust off before the season starts. So that first game for a lot of people, it was trying to find your rhythm because there's a lot of excitement involved. You're happy to be back out there. And then eventually as the game began to progress, even though it was like towards the end, uh, most began to get back into being comfortable and slowing the game down. But in terms of health-wise, I feel great. I wasn't tired. You know, I'm not sore. So I'm happy about that. I'm, I'm often uh, amused when fans say, I don't want to watch these retired players because they're 35 or 38. <laughs> it's not that old. I mean, people keep right. playing sports <laughs> at a high level when they're in their 30s and 40s. I mean, obviously, we're not going to see the same level that we see in the NBA. But what about the big three helps? What about three-on-three -three basketball sort of helps slow the game down a little bit, minimizes the full court, obviously, and allows – and do you think it will allow us to see some quality play? I definitely think it will allow to see some quality play. You still have some guys that are very skillful, that know how to play the game. But also, I think the three-on-three -three can be up-tempo. It all depends on how quick you get that ball out of bounds and, and how fast and how in shape people are and how fast you're willing to go. And I think it's going to be great. And if you think about basketball in and of itself, mostly every play, even in the NBA, even though you have a five-on-five, -five, it's either going to be a one-on-one -on -one scenario, two-on-two -two pick and roll, or it's going to be a two-on-two -two with help. Usually there's two people that, I mean, you can use them, 
but they're kind of over there as decoys. But the, the game usually is going to be a one-on-one, two-on-two-on-three-on-three two on two on three breakdown. I just found out days ago that they're even implementing this in the uh, upcoming Olympics. So for that to take place, I mean, there's definitely a lot of interest in seeing it. I'm sure listeners got the parallels just from the intro, from you know your protest of the national anthem to Colin Kaepernick's. And as I was going back and reading some stories from back in 1996, I didn't remember like the parallel. There were even more parallels than I think are, are commonly understood. The one that really stuck out to me was the fact that you were doing this for a really long time before anyone noticed. And it was the same with Kaepernick, where he kneeled on the sidelines and it took several weeks for someone to ask him about or for a reporter to notice. So can you tell folks who might not know your whole story, just how it started and what happened when, you know, someone finally noticed and asked you about it? Well, for me, it started, I just began to read more. And, and through my reading, I became aware of things that before I was unaware of. And I developed uh, even more of a conscience. And so uh, I began to look at things differently, including the symbols, uh, whether they're in America or other countries. And I just couldn't find myself knowing what I was, you know, uh, being made privy to, uh, to, to, to stand, you know, in, in, in a clip with a clear conscience. And so for months, probably four or five months, give or take, I was just doing my own private thing because I was still at the time searching, searching for answers. And uh, I wasn't looking for any publicity uh, as a result of it. Um, and it so happened that one day Todd Ely, who was the assistant general manager at the time, came to me and he said that there was a reporter that uh, noticed that I wasn't standing what I like to uh, have an interview with him. And I didn't see any problem with it because these are things that even on the bus, on the plane, in practice from time to time, we as athletes, as human beings, first, we talk about we talk about these things that are going on. And so I said, sure, I have a conversation. And little did I know what, what, what would happen. Um, the next thing you know, we're playing, I think the next day or so, we, we have a game with Orlando Magic. And after the shoot-around, there was a, an abundance of reporters and, and cameras. And that's when they hit me with the question. And I spoke my conscience, and it went global. Um, and uh, this is pretty much how it all came about. Uh, then from there, there were uh, the same. It was death threats. Um, uh, um, you know, of course, my career, you know, my, my, my career began to be affected as a result of that. The minutes began to decrease more and more. Um, and it, it's history. And a lot of the things that Kaepernick is going through now, I'm not surprised whatsoever. Uh, as soon as it happened, I, I said, look, uh, he's most likely, uh, unless the, the, you know, unless the system has changed totally, he's, he's going to get the same thing, if not worse. Now, the system has changed in some ways, Mahmoud. Uh, there's clearly more tolerance on some level. Athletes are more able to be active. Um, you look at the Black Lives Matter demonstrations by NBA players, the support that the NBA has given to LGBTQ issues. Uh, there certainly is more 
tolerance in the league and, and, and it seems a greater willingness on the part of players to make stands. Not every league is created equal. Uh, True. 20 years ago, David Stern suspended you for one game. You reached a compromise. And as you said, it clearly affected your career. Uh, you, you were traded ultimately. You had some injuries. You lost your starting job. After your contract expired, you didn't even get a tryout with another team. And you were, you were out of the league by 29. Coincidentally, Kaepernick, I think, is also 29. The NFL is different, but but the similarities are that we still cling to some of these rituals. Do you do you ever think that we'll stop playing the national anthem at sporting events? And should we? That's a good question. I, I really don't think that the national anthem should be played. I mean, I've gone to a lot of different countries, and they don't make it a big issue to play it. A lot of times we want to separate in this country. There's this concept of separating church and state, religion and politics. You know, and, and, and even in basketball, there's this sense, you know, I think Dave Zirin mentions it, too. It's, it's, it's when you represent, I guess, the wrong type of politics, you know, when, when it becomes a problem. And so in basketball, I think there's this sense that, OK, yes, there's more tolerance with certain things. But we'll honor, you know, certain individuals, for example, after their death, the Muhammad Ali's and all of these individuals. But when these things are happening right now in our day and time, the same, sometimes the same people that claim to honor people that are dead who stood for something, when you look at the decisions that they're making right now with people that are actually doing it on the ground today, and the response is different, for me, that's a hypocrisy. And so I don't think that it should be played. And I don't have a problem with politics. I don't have a problem with being political. I think most of everything in life political to some degree. But I just don't see a place for it in sport. But that, that's a tough one. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to ever uh, disappear. Uh, I hope it does. Then we wouldn't, ha- we wouldn't really have this problem. Right. I, and, and a lot of people don't observe it anyway. I mean, a lot of people don't give it the attention that many want us to give it. I mean, when I'm in stands and I hear it, I mean, even the fans and a lot of the players, they coaches sometimes. I mean, yeah, people's minds are on something else. They're not necessarily attached to this. This, uh, this, this symbolism in this, and, and, and this song. Not to mention when you do something every day, it kind of loses its impact. Exactly, exactly. So uh, I just hope that it, it, it disappears, but that, that, that will be something to see. Uh, that's a good question. So you took on this stance after converting to Islam, and I think it's an ob- obvious point to make that a lot of the reaction to you back then, and I think to this day, is because of your religious beliefs. I wanted to step back a minute to even before um, the anthem protest and just ask, what was the reaction when you converted in the basketball world? And also, you know, with Muhammad Ali's death last year, there was so much conversation about his conversion. And I'm particularly fascinated by the reaction looking back 50 years later that people had to him changing his name and the refusal by the press and by so many others to call him anything but Cassius Clay. And I'm wondering what response that you had when you changed your name. There were some similarities. When I changed my name, of course, you still have people, even to this day, it's been like, I think, 20, I don't know how many years since I've been known as Mahmoud. Most of my career in the NBA has been Mahmoud and not Chris Jackson. But still, you have people that want to call me Chris Jackson. And some, I don't think they mean harm. And some I've come across that it's deliberate. It's like they just refuse to want to respect the fact that 
I'm a human being. I have a mind of my own. And if I change my name, just respect that and call right. me by my name. But, you know, the reactions uh, initially when I became a Muslim, it was no big deal. You know, how many people profess to follow religion, whether it's Christianity, Ju- Judaism, Islam, but yet you don't really see them practicing it. Right. So initially, uh, OK, you know, a lot of people say they're Muslim. But the issue was really when they saw me beginning to practice it. You know, I'm praying, fasting, I'm, I'm talking about it. I was like, oh, he's serious. <laughs> we got to keep it. And, and you could see it. You can actually feel it as well. Like we got to keep an eye on this guy. And it eventually came out later, even with Dan Issel, when we were working on the book. And he was, uh, he had mentioned to the, to the guy who was writing, he said, you know, we would go on these road trips and people would come to the hotel and they would, uh, they would sit and uh, they would go to their rooms and, and they would stay there. And I don't know what they were doing or what they were talking about. Why should it be a concern? I'm not committing any criminal act. I'm not, you know, out in the clubs. I'm, I'm staying ready for the game. And even with the fasting, you know, that was just, you know, you don't need to fast. So, ho, 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 this is what I believe. You know, you don't have to do it. This is, this is what I'm following. But as the stats went up during Ramadan, then it was, okay, when is Ramadan coming? <laughs> but you know, it wasn't about, no, you don't have to fast. Were, look, we're looking for Ramadan. Are you sure you can't uh, fast all year long? Are you sure that it's only during that, that period? Right, right, right. So, yeah, it, it, it was some similar reactions. I mean, and still to this day, as I said, people refuse. Some of them refuse to want to call you that. And I just, I just try to walk away from it because I don't, I don't, I don't want to get into uh, to any confrontation. But, you know, people will be people. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Since uh, Colin Kaepernick's protest and the reaction to him and his uh, inability to get another job in the league, demand on you has uh, has sort of increased. What have you been doing in, in, in recent months and why have you decided to sort of return to the public eye? Uh, Mark Fainaruwada wrote a long profile of you in February for ESPN. You seem to be re-embracing the idea of speaking publicly, or maybe just I'm not aware of how much you've been speaking publicly in recent years. <laughs> Right, right. I'm glad you said the last point. I, actually, <laughs> I've been speaking publicly for a while. Uh, I'm not one that necessarily craves uh, the attention. Uh, there have been uh, numerous uh, opportunities for me in the past. Uh, I've been approached to do documentaries. I've been approached to do different things. And just because of my history, especially when it comes to the media, so much of what I've said, and even on television, uh, when, when there have been documentaries, a lot of it has been so chopped up and butchered at times that I just developed a disinterest and wanting to do interviews and come out and do those type of things. So I would go do speaking engagements here and there. And of course, a lot of these speaking engagements are not heavily publicized, even though there will be nice crowds that come. So I've been doing this for a while, but when this happened, of course, people wanted to reach out more. They look for people who have kind of done the same thing or similar. And, you know, these are issues that I deal with all the time anyway. So I felt, you know, well, it's important. And I think it's important when you're in a position. Also, you know, God puts us all in, in certain positions and we want to maximize them to the best of our abilities. And we all have a duty. 
you know, whether that's to speak out, whether that's to write about something, whether that's to act upon it. I told myself years ago that I want to die with a free conscience and a free soul, whether people like it or not. And there's something that that I have to say. And if I feel that I have something to say that's beneficial, I'm going to say it. And if it's something that I'm not ready to say, but, you know, I'm trying to be forced to say it before I'm ready, I'm not going to say it. So I just felt the timing was right. And I wanted him to know that my support for him was there, along with many others who were supporting him. You know, that's how it all came about. In that Mark Fanaru Wada story, he mentions that one of the media appearances that made you wary about talking, and you just referenced things getting chopped up, was an appearance that you made on Real Sports where you talked about your views on the September 11th attacks. How do you feel like your views on 9-11 were portrayed? And is there you know, anything that you'd want to say about that now? Well, w- w- without getting into so many specifics now, they were just, of course, they showed me on screen saying certain things. But the context, it was out of context. You know, if you ask me a question, we're talking about 9-11, and I give you an answer. But then when the television comes on, you show my answer. But before you show it and after you show it, you present it in a different context. Yeah, I said it. You, everybody, see, I said it. But it wasn't presented in the context in which I said it. And so these are the type of things that happened to me time and time again. And yet real sports was, there was a group of children in D.C. I'm talking elementary students. They weren't even sitting in the room. And I, I have to find these letters that were sent to me. They literally wrote numerous letters to me telling me where in the interview they felt it was butchered. And when I say they were right on the money, they were right. On, it, it amazed me how insightful these children were. And they weren't even in the room. And they butchered it that bad. So that really left a, you know, a sour taste in my mouth for, for a while. And I just couldn't trust anybody. And, and, and the guy in Denver who did, uh, actually, he did the piece uh, in my own words, literally brought tears to my eyes because after the interview, we spoke for about four hours on camera. And he came out and he identified himself as Jewish. And he said, listen, he said, you've given us enough in this interview. We appreciate it. We were supposed to be going to interview this person and that person. He said, you have my word that I'm going to do right by you. And I looked at him and, you know, as usual, I mean, I'm not going to say you're not going to do it. But from my experience, I didn't have a lot of confidence that he was going to keep his word neither. And I shook his hand. Thank you very much. Walked off. When I ended up saying it, of course, you, know, you can't put everything in there. But he, along with by the Dawn's Early Light documentary, they kept more so to the context of what I've said than anybody. And literally, I'm watching this thing. And I had tears in my eyes becoming like, wow, we have somebody with some integrity that finally kept their word. And that kind of made me feel a little bit better. You know, so it's just the experiences that took me away from it. Do you want to uh, elaborate a little bit on on what you mean, Mahmoud? Um, In in Mark's piece, he does re-quote some of the things you said about 9-11 and the the questions you, you, you were raising in your own mind about whether the U.S. government might have been involved. What was misrepresented? And... And what were you trying to, I'm, to I'm, say? I'm, I'm trying. It's, it's been. I'm trying to think about. Give me. Give me a minute. Sure. To uh, maybe come back to that, but I'd, I'd have to think about the interview all over again. Okay. So one thing that we haven't touched on is that um, you were diagnosed with Tourette's at an early age, and I remember, you know, when I was watching you at LSU as a kid, that was something that was always 
talked about as something that you overcame and was part of your story. Um, is that something that you're still dealing with to this day? And how has that influenced your basketball career? Uh, definitely. Uh, from the moment I wake up um, until right before I go to sleep, I'm constantly dealing with Tourette syndrome. Um, it's, it's, it's <laughs> you know, my daughter asked me this morning, uh, last night, Dad, does it get on your nerves? I said, boy, it does. Uh, because it's, you know, it's, it's, you're constantly trying to, it's like your mind and your body on two different wavelengths. And if you touch something, if you read something, if it doesn't come off your lips right, if it doesn't feel right, you have to touch it again. Even if it's painful, you have to keep touching it with the same intensity and keep going over it. And it gets very frustrating. But I found, you know, also that, you know, having it, even as a basketball player, it's helped me to become a better basketball player because there were moments when I didn't want to train for as long. But after my training, it forced me to stay out to get it right. And I couldn't leave because if I left before that, it's like my whole day would be crooked and it would make my symptoms worse because I know I didn't complete the mission in a sense. And so I, I usually tell people that it's something that I, I'm, I'm very thankful for because I don't think I'd be the person I am today. I don't think I'd be the basketball player I am today without it. And I say, so basically Tourette's is taking me where I myself would not have gone without it because it pushed me beyond what Chris Jackson or Mahmoud would have done. And it's forced me to know you got to get this right. Do you think it contributed to you wanting to read and study and did it in the same way that it contributed to your basketball career somehow influence your, you know, learning about Islam? Uh, yes. Uh, but, but I think more so just not wanting to be a failure, not wanting to be, you know, when I was younger athletes, are typically we get the label of he's a great athlete, but he's not intelligent. And I'd heard this throughout my elementary, junior high, high school, career after becoming a muslim you know the, one of the first verses is read right analyze ponder reflect and so i didn't want to be there and malcolm became a huge influence for me you know the way he thought the way he analyzed things and, and the more i read i'm just i'm becoming fascinated with how people think how they come up with these ideas and how they articulate them i'm like wow you know and i said man i, I would love to learn and and to be able to do these things of course for the right reasons and so that's really what fascinated me, just reading books and how people could come up with these ideas and articulate them. It was just, it's like watching an athlete, you know, he's so poetic and athletic and it amazes you. This is the way I am now when I read and I come across some information. I just got to say, oh, man, you know, I get excited. It, 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 it exacerbates my Tourette syndrome. I can be in public and it's hard for me to keep. I mean, I start screaming. They looking around like, man, I said, I apologize. There's, there's some heavy information up here. You just don't understand. And plus, I've been deprived of it for so long, for so many years. And I'm coming across stuff that I feel I should have learned and I didn't learn. And so I'm just thirsty for it now. Just very thirsty. Well, it was Dale Brown that, that introduced you to the autobiography of Malcolm X, right? Yes, it was. Um, Dale, yeah, he was an avid reader. And one day he just gave it to me. I'd never heard of Malcolm before in my life. And that set you on this, you know, as you describe this sort of contemplative journey. I mean, you were different from a lot of your teammates in the NBA. Your Tourette syndrome, I'm sure, affected you in some ways. You were reading a lot. You were contemplative, thoughtful. 
did that affect your relationships with teammates in the league? And do you think it contributed in any way to how you reacted to the anthem protest and to the way uh, the teams that you were playing for reacted to you? Well, when, when you're reading and you come across information that touches you, it's going to force you to make a decision. Either I'm just going to sit on this information or I'm going to try to live this information out. I'm going to try to make this a part of my behavior. So I think that's what information does. Did it adversely affect my relationship with my teammates? I can't say that I noticed anything. Now, that's something that they would have to say and expose. But I didn't notice the way we worked together, the way we communicated together changed, other than debates here and there. Dikembe and I would get, get on debates at times, you know, and, and we would go at it. This is what teammates do. Yeah, that's not uncommon. <laughs> that's not uncommon in a locker room. Does he wag his finger when you debate, or is that only on the court? <laughs> no, that's only on the basketball court. <laughs> but but I mean, it would get it would get heated, and there were times on the bus it would be religious debate, sometimes political debate. Dale Ellis and I, for example, I gave him a a copy of uh, it was a book, uh, "Behold a Pale Horse," because I read everything, and it's like a conspiracy theory, but there's a lot of truth in it. And so we would sit on the plane a lot and we would discuss these political issues. What's happening in the government? What's happening in life? Dikembe and I, we get on this tangent. You know, Imam Khomeini came up one time and he said, well, he's this. I said, have you ever read his stuff? No. Well, I, I learned it in the university. I said, man, don't tell me about what the university is teaching you. There's a lot of stuff. They don't teach you everything you need to know. So we get into this debate and one day I give him a book. He said, who is it by? I said, don't worry about it because the couple was off of it. He couldn't see the picture. I said, read this right here. Tell me what you think. He was reading it. I said, what do you think? He says, very good. I said, you know who wrote it? He says, no. I said, Imam Khomeini. He said, oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I said, look, read what people are saying. Don't just accept what the media is saying or what this is saying. Read, investigate. So we would, we doing this all the time, but our relationship on the court, we passed each other, we helped each other out. We had fun. You know, even to this day when I see these guys, I just talked to Brian Stiff the other day. Great time on the phone, just reminiscing. So, you know, I wasn't that type of guy. I mean, I'm going to have dialogue. I'm going to agree and disagree with you. But uh, it didn't adversely affect my relationship with my teammates. And besides, I wasn't that guy that really associated a lot outside of my teammates. I didn't hang out in, in clubs. And not to insinuate that all athletes do. But I was pretty much during the season, when the game was over, I'm back at the hotel. And I had guys in every city coming to the hotel to greet me. And we would sit up. We would order room service. We would talk for hours just about issues. And I would just be enlightened. And we would, we would go back and forth. And this is how I spent my time during the year. It's been 21 years since the anthem protest. Have you ever spoken with David Stern about what happened? And do you believe that the NBA owes you any sort of apology? I've never talked to David Stern um, a day in my life. Um, even when the media was saying, for example, oh, he's supposed to be meeting David Stern. They have a meeting scheduled in New York City during this thing. I'm looking at the media and like, I don't know who they've been talking to because I've never in my life spoke to David Stern. There was never a meeting that was scheduled between him and I. Do I think they owe me an apology? <laughs> I'm, I'm not big on words. In, in the sense, I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess you're big on words. Big, no, no, no <laughs> I'm, I'm more big on action in, in this, in this context. 
you know, it's easy for someone to say, we apologize. We'll say, hey, look, if they feel that they're sorry, that's up to them that they want to communicate that. It's not going to make or break my life. You know, I'm, I'm moving on. You know, I'm trying to do bigger and better things. And that's a decision that they're going to have to make. But I do definitely think that my career was adversely affected as a result of that. There were coaches, for example, through my agent that had mentioned that, uh, you know, when we come to these arenas, we, we design plays against this guy. Why aren't they playing him? The media attention began to decrease drastically because a lot of times when I didn't play, hey, why, why aren't you playing? It's like there was a hands-off approach during that time when that happened with the flag. Uh, Coangelo uh, had mentioned to my agent, my agent told me uh, when I was in my prime going through that, uh, he called, he couldn't even finish his statement. He said, hey, man, Mahmoud, is the, we're not interested. And it has nothing to do with his basketball either. Is that Jerry Colangelo when he owned the, uh, the Phoenix Suns? Right. So I'm like, man, I wish I could have had that on, uh, uh, on audio. Because, I mean, that's just in your face. But anyway, yeah, that, that's up to them. Mahmoud, do you think you could play in the NBA right now? Yes. <laughs> if, if, if I'm not saying I can play a whole lot of minutes, but uh, there's no touching, pretty much. Uh, I mean, I'm in shape. I, I feel good about myself. Uh, I definitely think I can play, but I can't tell you uh, how long, how many minutes I can play. But I train a lot of guys even to this day, and we get out there and we play one-on-one. And I still relative, I mean, I still have my, my quickness pretty much, still have my, 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 my speed. And like I said, I stay in shape. But do I think I can? Yeah. Do I want to? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, love, I, love, I love competing and I love training. I love my time with my family. I'm more on the skill development side. I love to take guys and, and, and okay, let's see if we can take what you, what you have and make it better fine-tune it and and i love that aspect of it i love to train guys because it's not just about training the body but you also have the opportunity to talk with learn from them they learn from you uh i love that i love it and then i can go home i can go (laughs) home right after and i don't have to travel on the road you know so much mahmoud abdul rauf is currently on the road for the big three playing for the three-headed monsters uh, the most important thing we learned in this interview is that he was not the last pick in the big three <laughs> draft. Apologies for that again. Mahmoud, thanks so much for giving us the time. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. To clarify something from earlier in the interview, the reason we asked Mahmoud abdul about his views on 9-11 is that in the February ESPN story we referenced earlier, Mark Fainaru-Wada wrote that on three different occasions, unprompted, Abdul Rauf broached the notion that the 9-11 attacks might have been part of a U.S. government conspiracy. I don't buy the whole story. I don't buy everything that I've been told. Abdul Rauf told Fainarouwada. We asked him later in the interview if he cared to expand on his first answer, and he said that he did not. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
On June 15th, Rick Welts, the president of the Golden State Warriors, rode in a 1963 Rolls-Royce during the team's NBA championship parade in Oakland. Ten days later, he was in New York City riding in another parade, this time on a float sponsored by the league in New York's Pride March. Welts is the highest-ranking openly gay executive in a men's pro sport, and he was on the NBA float with a former player, Jason Collins, and a referee, Bill Kennedy both of whom also have come out in recent years. Rick Welts joins us now. Hey, Rick. How are you doing? Doing well. Good to uh, catch up with you. Uh, I covered the NBA back when you were with the NBA's main office, and your career has changed a lot since then. Um, But before we get to that and your decision to come out in 2011 and what's happened since then and also what the Warriors are doing to the rest of the NBA, I wanted to ask you about the Pride Parade. Uh, An openly gay executive player and referee makes a pretty dramatic statement about pro sports, but you weren't alone up there either. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver and his wife were on the float and hundreds of NBA employees marched alongside. What does that say to you and how does that make you feel? Uh, I think I'm incredibly proud of uh, the way the NBA is, has approached this, and uh, it was extraordinary to be on a beautiful day in New York and be riding with those people. I, I think I was most impressed by the last thing you mentioned was the 400 uh, employees of the NBA who were marching alongside. That, to me, was uh, quite extraordinary, and I do believe that the NBA is the only league that has participated in such a way in the Pride Parade, and I think it uh, you know, it speaks volumes about where our league is and, and what kind of uh, environment we want to create for people who work there. So for people who aren't familiar with your story, can you explain your decision to come out in 2011? Why was that the right time for you? I think there is a different time for everyone, depending upon their own personal journey. And I had just uh, reached a point in my career. I was president of the Phoenix Suns, uh, and I just had felt there were a lot of things going on in my life personally that made it the right time. I didn't really know how to do it or uh, whether or not it was a big story or a little story. So I actually... uh, Went to dinner one night uh, with an old friend of mine, uh, Dan Cloris, who uh, uh, knows media about as well as anybody else, and just sat down with him at dinner and said, look, this is what I'm prepared to do, but I need somebody smarter than me to tell me, like, is this a, a no big deal and I can take care of it privately, or is there something more to be gained to do in a more public way? And How important I, am I, basically? <laughs> Well, or how important would the story be? And, and uh, you know, Dan looked across the table to me and just said, look, if you're prepared to do this, I think it's, uh, you know, page A1 New York Times. And that was kind of my holy cow moment, I guess. And, you know, he was extraordinary to hook me up with a Pulitzer Prize winning writer for the Times, Dan Barry, who spent a lot of time, came out to Phoenix, talked to a lot of people, a lot of people in our industry. And, you know, ended up writing uh, a really wonderful story that did end up on the front page of the New York Times in May of 2011. So you know, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, something I originally thought to do, but uh, as things played out, uh, I couldn't be happier with the way it happened. And I reread the uh, the Times story by Dan Barry, and one of the things with, that struck me was how David Stern, the commissioner of the NBA, handled this over many years. I mean, you you joined the 
you joined the NBA while you were still in high school. You were a ball boy for for the Seattle Supersonics and uh, an assistant trainer after college and worked your way up through the PR department and then joined the NBA in New York in the, the 1980s. I mean, for people who don't know your background, you came up with All-Star Weekend pretty much in 1984, including the slam dunk contest and for better or worse, the Legends game. Uh, you marketed the Dream Team. You helped start the WNBA. You became the number three executive at, at the league, the top marketing executive before you left for, uh, for, for Phoenix. And you did this all while you were closeted. How much did the fact that you were working in sports contribute to your reluctance to come out, even when you were working for the NBA, which was pretty progressive compared to other leagues, even in the 80s and 90s? Well, I would say it, it definitely was the overriding factor for me. Um, I'd grown up in sports, uh, spent my entire career in sports, and there certainly had been no one I could look to uh, who had gone through this process and I could see how it might turn out. And because of that, I think there was a lot of fear around how it would affect my career in my personal life, to my family, uh, my friends, this certainly was no secret and had been embraced, uh, which is probably how I could manage my way through my work life. But, you know, at work, it was really a place where I had placed boundaries about talking about my personal life. And I had just chosen to be silent on the subject. I wasn't trying to put up smoke screens. I, you know, I went to 17 NBA holiday parties, and I never asked any women friends to accompany me there. But, uh, you know, it, it was not a t I was really, really nervous about whether or not it would impact uh, what I loved to do, which was, uh, you know, be an executive in sports. You know, in that story, it really struck me how David Stern handled, uh, handled this over the years. In the mid-1990s, your longtime partner died, and David donated $10,000 in his memory, but he never asked you about the relationship. He respected those boundaries. When you told him you were gay, he said in that time story that he was thinking there's a good chance the world will find this unremarkable. And he meant that in a good way. Was Stern right? Had, you know, has your professional life changed uh, in, in, in any dramatic ways since you came out? Well, only, only for the better. Uh, this is an interview I probably wouldn't be doing had that not come. So uh, this is kind of what I did sign up for. I, I would say it's hard to even... Imagine that 2011 was a long time ago, but it was in terms of societal attitudes. And I don't think I could have foreseen anybody could have foreseen the shift in our society in terms of attitudes toward the LGBT community, toward uh, marriage equality in such a short period of time. So, you know, I, I think today, if, if uh, today was the day I was making this announcement, I'm not sure it would even be newsworthy to the New York Times. Uh, which I guess is a sign of progress. Uh, but at the time, it, it was unfortunately very, very significant. And, and still, we, we are trailing in professional sports. The rest of society, I think, it's, it's not a, you know, a battle that's been won. It's one that's ongoing and you know, one that uh, hopefully I can make a small contribution to. It would be huge news, though, if another active player came out. And I think... I don't want to speak for everyone, but when Jason Collins came out in 2013, at least it felt like to me at the time that this was a dam breaking. And now since then, the dam has somehow reconstituted itself. Were you surprised or have you been surprised that no other active NBA players have come out 
since Jason Collins did. And really, that's been across all leagues. Now, you know, Michael Sam was a huge deal, and he wasn't followed in the NFL. I don't know that I'm uh, I'm surprised because I think a lot of the same factors that uh, were in play when Jason made his decision are still very much in play today. You know, by definition, I think you're dealing with a very young population, mostly in their 20s, who don't have a huge amount of life experience, who, because of their extraordinary athletic talent, have led, in some ways, very sheltered lives from how most of us grow up because of their athletic prowess. And, you know, they have a very short amount of time in order to earn a career's worth of a lifetime of earnings. And I think there are a lot of other dynamics in the construction of a team that really make it pretty extraordinary for somebody to decide to take that step. You know, I I was on a talk show with uh, Tom Tolbert, former NBA player, talking about the subject in his view, which I've kind of adopted is not so much the players would really be concerned about the reaction of other players or management or fans, but players are part of a very delicate chemistry that creates a, a culture and a winning team and and to impose the amount of attention on themselves in that environment, I think causes a lot of people pause to not want to be disruptive to what they're trying to achieve as a team and wanting to be a good teammate. So I I think there are a lot of factors in play. It is going to happen. Uh, It'll happen with a substantial player at some point in time, but that's going to take somebody who is an extraordinary strong individual. But don't don't you think that there might be some fear that you know, I know that Michael Sam feels like he wasn't given a chance in the NFL because he came out, or at least that that was a contributing factor. Um, wouldn't there be some fear around that as well? Sure. I think if you were a, a player just entering the league, I can understand the concern about that. I, I, I think it'll be more likely a, a much more established player who has a very secure financial future in front of them and and feels like there's something they can do that is a big contribution to the world by making that statement. But, uh, you know, everyone has a different story and everyone follows a different path. And I don't think you can, you know, there's no generalities here. It's a, it's a very individual thing. And at some point in time, some individual is going to land on a point in time in a situation where they have the confidence to do that. And, you know, I think I'll cheer that, but uh, I can certainly understand the factors that play into why you'd hesitate to make that decision. Uh, I thought it was pretty heartening in this regard over the weekend that Kevin Durant tweeted when you were participating in the Pride Parade, proud that our president, Rick Welts, is representing the Warriors and joining the NBA and WNBA family in this year's NYC Pride March. He's got 16 million followers. Um, that certainly sends a message not only to fans, but to other players, um, I would think. And I thought it was also interesting that most of the comments underneath the tweet weren't about the content of the tweet. They were about whether Kevin Durant is the goat or whether he's a cupcake. And I I took that as kind of a positive thing. Uh, I do too. You know, I texted Kevin as soon as I saw that to thank him for that. But it didn't surprise me. I think if you follow Kevin, uh, you know, he's not afraid to to speak out on social issues where uh, he thinks his voice is important and I would say that goes really across our team. This is the the most extraordinary group of athletes I've ever had a privilege to work around. And and as you noted, I've been doing this since I was 16 years old. And it is really uh, a group of thoughtful, intelligent young men who comprise our roster. And, 
you know, I think they aren't afraid to express themselves. And I, and I wouldn't have been surprised had that tweet come from Draymond Green or another player. Uh, Kevin, uh, I appreciated that he, he took the time to do that. You mentioned earlier players not wanting to draw a lot of attention to themselves. You you know, Draymond Green, definitely an example of that. Somebody who doesn't doesn't want people to pay attention to what he has to say. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm curious, um, you joined the Warriors in 2011, and that was before the recent run of success. And I think, I hope you would agree that most of the reason that the Warriors won is because the players are great <laughs> and that they um, play so well together. But what have you seen since you've been there from your vantage point as the team president that created the conditions to put together one of the greatest teams in history? Well, i start with a team that already has Steph Curry on the roster. Uh, that uh, That's the team that Joe Lacob and Peter Goober bought seven years ago, and, and he is the only player obviously remaining from that roster. But when you start with somebody, uh, not only with the talent, but as the character of Steph Curry, you have a great, great place to start. And I think we all give a lot of credit to Mark Jackson, who came into an environment where uh, the culture was about losing and the expectation was that our team and our organization was going to lose on a regular basis, and that was okay. I think Mark really contributed to changing the mindset uh, of the players in the locker room, expecting to win instead of expecting to lose. And, you know, I think he got, he deserves uh, and earned a lot of credit for really an attitude change amongst the players, but it's organizationally, it's top down. I mean, we, we have very few people still working with us who were there seven years ago when we started this journey, and we set out with some pretty lofty goals, believing that a NBA franchise in the Bay Area of California should stand toe-to-toe with any franchise in sports with all the elements of success that were within our grasp. We just hadn't captured them. We hadn't put it into a culture within the organization to succeed, but success breeds success, and uh you know, I think that we've created an atmosphere where players would like to come to our team. They understand how unselfish our players are and the style of basketball we play requires a special kind of athlete to buy into it. But if you buy into it, you can have a lot of success. And I think, you know, it's no one little thing, but uh, I think it's a combination of a uh, hundred little things every day that, that create the kind of atmosphere where you can have that kind of success. I think the rest of the league might be saying you don't need any more players. So <laughs> at this point, uh, one of the, the big business changes for the franchise is going to be your move. Um, after 40 plus years in Oakland, you're building a uh, billion dollar arena complex on the waterfront in San Francisco that the Warriors are expected to move into in 2019-20. Um, team bought the land, privately financing the project. We're actually talking about this later on the program with someone else. But how much of the ownership uh, decision to do this privately do you think was sort of forced on it by the lack of appetite to spend public money on new stadiums and how much of it was a belief that, you know, this is probably the right thing for sports to be doing? Well, I, uh, there certainly was going to be no appetite for public investment in San Francisco or anywhere in the Bay area. So that was kind of a given and we're playing in the oldest facility in the NBA it was actually built. Oracle arena was built before Madison square garden was built. 
And looking toward the future, we needed a new facility to set the foundation for success for the next 30 years. And the ownership of the Warriors makes big and bold bets. And uh, this is the biggest and boldest of them all, I think, in terms of privately financing a facility of this type in San Francisco, a city that's never had one of these facilities. And believe me, it sounded awfully easy the way you described it. It's been a really incredibly difficult. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying you're saying the Cow Palace wasn't one of these facilities? Well, uh, yeah, I guess that is what I'm saying. It, uh, it, it, it's wonderful for nostalgia, but not great for uh, generating the kind of economics you're going to need to have a successful NBA franchise going forward. And our ownership is willing to take big bets, and they made one here, and you know we're in the ground. Uh, steel will be going up next month, and and we'll be opening in the summer of '19, and it does what I just described. I think it really sets the foundation for uh, the future. We're only moving eight miles. We're not we're not moving uh, to another county. We're, you know, we are moving to another county, but we're not moving to another uh, area of California. We're we're really moving eight miles in the area that has rich public transportation, and we don't really expect our fan base to change. Uh, what is going to change is the experience of going to a Warriors game, which for the players on down to each fan is going to be a, a much more enjoyable experience. You mentioned the franchise identity before Mark Jackson got there, which, you know, with some very notable exceptions, was a history of, say, not winning. Um, but since then, the identity has evolved first from being this sort of scrappy contender and then a surprise NBA champion to now being perceived by, you know, a lot of fans and the rest of the league as the overdog, certainly not the underdog. And now you're moving away from Oakland and to San Francisco. Are you at all concerned with maintaining the identity of the business and the organization as this team that people love and want to root for and not being seen as this kind of money printing franchise with, you know, four all-stars who nobody's really able to compete with? Well, uh, there were several questions in there, I think, but that is what keeps every one of us awake at night and have since we kind of set out on this journey, because while we need to do a lot to set ourselves up for success in the future, we can't lose the things that have been so valuable in, in achieving the success we've already had. And, you know, we've done a lot of things uh, in the arena itself. We think that we'll contribute to the same kind of atmosphere we've had. We're actually making it smaller than the building we're playing in now. We're not making it a building that NHL hockey could call home. We want it to be a superior basketball and, and concert facility. We're through some great architectural engineering or only going to have one ring of traditional suites between the upper and lower bowl to bring the lower bowl even closer. Those are the kind of things that we focus on in creating the atmosphere. We've also been renewing our season ticket base at 99% for the past four years with a promise that every one of those fans can move with us the eight miles to San Francisco. And our expectation is that's exactly what's going to happen. So I, I don't think it's the four walls of Oracle that make that place so special. I think it's the people that are in it and the team that's on the floor. And all those things are, are coming with us. But certainly we, you know, we've become to the rest of the NBA, uh, you know, the supervillains, which, you know, if you know our roster is, is we are terribly cast in that role because uh, the personalities on this team 
really don't lend themselves to that characterization. Maybe other than Draymond, on occasion. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, what about Zaza? What about Zaza? Yeah. Oh, poor Zaza. Maybe the sweetest kid in the history of the world. He, uh, you know, he, he is uh, loving life, and finally has a will have an NBA ring on opening night uh, next year. And you know, he uh, I, I don't think he really committed the transgressions that uh, some coach in San Antonio might have uh, put on him uh, during the playoffs this year. You were at the league office, Rick, trying to market the NBA when there were legit dynasties, the Celtics and the Lakers in the 80s and then the Bulls in the 90s. Was that difficult? And do you view the establishment of a potential dynasty or the desire to have a potential dynasty any differently than you did when you were uh, trying to market the league as a whole? I don't think so. I think great teams have always been great for the league. That the, everything that you just cited have been kind of the peaks of success and popularity of the league. So, you know, I think having great teams is part of attracting uh, big audiences and great interests. So I think it's probably harder today to maintain with the number of teams and our current system of uh, collective bargaining and player movement. I think it probably is harder to sustain today than perhaps it was in the earlier years of the NBA, but I don't think that diminishes the value of having the best possible collection of players and the best possible winning culture of any team, because that, I think even our television ratings this year proved that uh, people are drawn to that. People are drawn to excellence and people want to see the best of the best. And I think you combine that with our style of play, which I think is, uh, reminiscent uh, of a lot of uh, the history of our game and the great Boston and Los Angeles teams and how the game is played and shared and how defense is played. I I think it's a really attractive product right now. And I think that uh, people forget that three of those four all-stars that you referred to uh, were drafted and not drafted uh, in top positions by the Warriors. This team was built the old fashioned way. and, And obviously the addition of Kevin Durant is the one exception to that, but the rest of the team was built by great drafting and credit to Steve Kerr and his coaching staff for being able to create a atmosphere every day where, where those guys love coming to work. And I think the results speak for themselves. So in our first segment, we talked to Mahmoud Abdul Raouf and you were in the league office in the mid nineties when he protested the national anthem and he's still upset at the way that he was treated by the league and by David Stern. And I'm curious if you had any insights to what happened back then. And also, I know I'm doing my like asking 18 questions and one question thing again, but also if you think that the response to someone protesting the anthem like he did back in 96 would be different today. Well, I think it it is, uh, has evolved today. You know, I can't really speak to the specifics of that case. I wasn't really involved in that one. But, you know, at the beginning of this year, following up on uh, Colin Kaepernick's protest in the NFL this past season, you know, it, it was a hot topic, if you'll remember, at the beginning of our season on what our players wanted to do. And teams took different approaches. Some teams locked arms through the entire season. I think it was going to be the player's decision on what the right thing was to do. And I think you know, whether or not that was the perfect decision by Stern, I think the environment in the NBA uh, means that we have utmost respect for our players and their opinions and believe they're not just robot athletes. We believe they're human beings that are smart and have points of view on a lot of things other than 
and how to play defense. And I think that that's reflected in how the league dealt with that this year. And I think it's one of the reasons that our players feel uh, very much a part of what the NBA is trying to accomplish and what we want to project as a league. And I don't think players feel any, I don't know, prohibition against expressing their points of view. And I think they're smart people and do it at, at the time that they think that it makes a difference. But I, I love the culture of the NBA. You know, I've, it's been a, a part of my life uh, since I was a little kid. And I really do believe that uh, the NBA always has respected the value of each individual player and how much that means to our game. And, and I know we're going to continue to do that going forward. Well, that's certainly reflected in, in the reaction, the response that you got when you came out. And to, to conclude the, our conversation and bring it back to where we started, you know, I can't imagine the NFL sponsoring a float in an LGBTQ event right now. Um, uh, I can imagine how great the cultural impact would be if it did. Why do you think the NBA has been more progressive than other leagues? Every league has different concerns, obviously, different constituencies. But what over the course of the last three, four decades has led the NBA to the point where it has this reputation vis-a-vis other sports organizations? You know, I, I think that when David – I got the NBA in 82, David Stern became commissioner in 84, and I think from day one, you know, social responsibility was something that was preached at a league when there were – I think I was the 35th employee of the NBA, and when I left 17 years later, we had over 1,000. And as the organization grew, kind of embracing uh, the opportunity to uh, have a voice in our society and have an impact in our society was part of the DNA of the league, but through its leadership. I mean, it, it's hard to separate David Stern from any of the statements you just said. And, you know, Adam, who who studied under David for a long, long time before becoming commissioner, I think has picked up that mantle and carried it in an extraordinary way in the short tenure that he's been commissioner. And I, I just think it's now just a part of the DNA. I think we were the first league who embraced our players in a in a way where we created an economic system where the players were guaranteed a share in every dollar that came into the league. And, and I think our league has not always succeeded, but worked hard to create a culture where I think the players and management feel like we have similar interests and values and shouldn't be afraid to move forward in a way that expresses those publicly. I don't think it's any one thing, but I do think you have to look at the leadership of the league under Stern, now under Adam, to say that without that, uh, it wouldn't have been possible to accomplish. Rick Welts is the president and chief operating officer of the Golden State Warriors. He's looking forward to riding in a 1963 Rolls Royce again next year, I bet. Owned by, owned by Sammy Davis Jr. One no point. way. How about that? Wow. Yeah. Now that's oh, pretty that's, cool. That, that was really cool. Was Rick, really cool. Rick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks, Josh. As anyone who reads the website Field of Schemes knows, every stadium deal in America is awful. Cities and counties and states consistently fall prey to the demands of owners who insist they need hundreds of millions of dollars to build gleaming new sports palaces or to renovate their existing sports palaces that already are pretty damn gleaming. Gleam or no gleam, these monuments to excess provide little to no economic benefit, and the basketball and baseball and football and soccer teams that play inside them don't even win more than half of the time. What a crock, I say. But in a recent piece on Slate, our Moneybox writer, Henry Grabar, pointed out that it doesn't always have to be this way. In Miami, he wrote, 
David Beckham has wrought America's best stadium deal. Here to tell us why is Henry Grabar. How's it going, Henry? It's going well. Thanks, Josh. I want to hear more about this David Beckham. English fellow, bending free kicks, interesting hair. He was granted the rights to an expansion team by Major League Soccer a few years ago. It's unclear when they're actually going to start playing or what the team's name will be, although Miami Vice has been thrown around. What we do know is that in early June, Miami-Dade County approved the sale of the last few acres of land that Miami Vice, or whatever we're going to call them, needed to build um, its stadium. So what can you tell us about this deal, and how is it different than what we usually see um, in American stadiums? Sure. The big difference is that there will be no public money going into the construction of this stadium. In most cities, what you see is a tax on car rentals or hotel rooms or stadium admissions or concessions that goes into paying off the bonds, usually public bonds, municipal bonds, tax-free, that paid for the construction of the stadium. None of that is going to happen in Miami, where this 25,000-seat stadium will be funded by the team owners. So I think that that seems like the most sensible way for pro sports stadiums to be paid for. Unfortunately, I don't think it's a replicable model because there are several circumstances that make Miami unique. So why or how did it happen that um, this is all privately financed? Well, you have to go back a few years. David Beckham has been trying so hard to get this stadium built in Miami. This is the fourth site that he's looked at. It's not a great site on the face of it. It's in one of Miami's poorest neighborhoods. It's not on the water. Uh, It's on the Miami River which is not much of a river. It's located about a half mile from Miami's sort of booming downtown where America's first private passenger rail station will open later this year. So it's a downtown site, but it's not the one they wanted. They had three previous attempts to get this stadium built. They looked at a site in Little Havana, pretty close to where the Miami Marlins play. Uh, They looked at a site on the water, pretty close to where the Miami Heat plays. And none of those worked out for them. So Major League Soccer has been putting pressure on them to get this deal done because they want this expansion franchise to open. They have other cities who are waiting in the wings to step in and build stadiums. So there's been a lot of pressure on Beckham, and I think they felt that when they found this plot of land, this was their last opportunity to make it happen. So they didn't have a ton of leverage working with the city and the county to procure public funding. I should add that because Miami-Dade made such a bad deal, first with uh, American Airlines Arena, which is where the heat uh, play in which it owns. And then with uh, Marlins Park, um, the Jeffrey uh, Loria building, which is one of the worst stadium deals in America, the mayor of Miami-Dade, Carlos Jimenez, was very wary of making this mistake again. So he drove a really hard bargain with the soccer team. So you have to give him credit for that. And the Dolphin Stadium was not exactly a great deal for the city. I mean, this is a city that has been screwed over multiple times by the major league sports uh, stadium con. Beckham can do this partly because he got a sweetheart deal on an expansion fee for Major League Soccer. When he signed with the Los Angeles Galaxy, part of his contract included the rights to pay $25 million for a team. The expansion fee now is something like $150 million. And let's also be clear, 25,000-seat stadium, this is budgeted at $220 million. That's a lot less than the cost of a football or baseball stadium. So this is makes economic sense potentially for owners. But the reason that it works is that a city 
you know, as you said, they didn't have a lot of leverage. Beckham had some options to try to move, but there are a lot of cities that are actually bidding for MLS teams, and he wanted to be in Miami. So the, the leverage that team owners have is, I'm going to go somewhere else. And in this case, Beckham didn't have that and clearly wanted to do this, but good for the city for saying, screw it. This is a, this is a business, right? This is like building an office building. And until America realizes that we should be treating stadiums like office buildings, we're going to continue to have these giveaways. Right. And let's give a little credit to the MLS, too, because one of the stipulations that came with Beckham's original deal when he signed with the Galaxy uh, was that this stadium had to go downtown. The MLS does not want more stadiums being built in the middle of nowhere in some strip mall off the highway 20 miles from downtown. They don't see that as part of their vision of what the MLS looks like. So... Uh, That meant that Beckham and co, when they knew they wanted to build in the Miami metro area, they didn't have the option of playing, say, uh, Miami-Dade County and Broward County against each other. Um, which is how, you know, stadiums typically get these great deals like, uh, you know, like the Braves in Atlanta with uh, Cobb County and Fulton County. So, Henry, the big stadium deal of the last couple months is the one in Vegas where the Raiders are moving. And that seems more like the classic horrible deal. That might even be worse than the classic horrible deal. What are the circumstances there and what are the reasons why it seems like Vegas is going to get hosed? It might be the very worst deal. It's a 1.9 billion football stadium. So how you could spend (laughs) $1.9 billion building a football stadium is beyond me. But, you know, what happens in Vegas? Um, I can tell you that Stanford economist Roger Knoll, who studies these things, says it's the worst deal for a city he had ever seen. Clark County taxpayers are going to contribute $750 million, uh, which is a record for a sports facility, and that adds up to about $354 per resident. Um, now, that is coming from an increased tax on hotel rooms, which when I wrote this piece originally, uh, a lot of Las Vegas pro stadium people wrote into me to say, you idiot, you don't understand. That's a tax on hotel rooms in the future. The stadium's going to bring in people who stay at hotels. That may be true. Nevertheless, if the economy goes south and fewer people end up in those hotel rooms, those tax dollars are still earmarked for the stadium. And what they currently pay for is largely schools and transportation in Nevada and Las Vegas. So those are budgets that can be cut the stadium bonds for this $1.9 billion stadium cannot be cut. So those are getting funded no matter what for the next 30 years. Well, if the Raiders win, then the joy from the populace that's um, you know instigated by that will power the trains itself. Yeah, they have a pretty insane idea of what the Raiders are going to do in Las Vegas. I mean, these things are usually inflated, right? They always suggest that... The team is going to fill seats. People are going to fly across the country to, to attend the games and all that. In this case, I think it's particularly ridiculous. The forecast suggests 450,000 new visitors every year Aye. for a 65,000-seat stadium. Uh, they think people coming to Raiders games are going to average 3.2 nights per visit. And it's like it's, these guys already play in Oakland. They have one of the lowest attendances in the NFL. And now you're telling me they're going to go 300 miles to Las Vegas and all of a sudden they're going to be a team that people travel across the country to see? It seems unlikely to me. To get to 450,000 people coming every year, you would have to 
imagine that there were no fans in Las Vegas of the team, which would seem like it would be an argument for not putting a team in Las Vegas in the first place. You tie yourself into interesting knots here. Right. It's either so many tourists are going to come to see this team that, that you know, it's going to be a massive boom. Yeah, it's a difficult one to square. They, they think a third of tickets are going to be purchased by tourists. Um, no other city manages more than 10 percent. I have trouble believing, as I said, that the Raiders are suddenly going to be a massive tourist attraction just because they play in a city that does have such a huge tourism industry. There's a lot of other stuff to do in Las Vegas, right? A thing or two. But the issue with these deals ultimately is that nobody's responsible. The leagues don't care as long as the $2 billion stadium deal gets approved. The NFL has been twisting municipalities' arms for three decades or longer to try to get the most lucrative deals possible. And then the NFL stands up and says, well, we contribute a couple hundred million to all of these deals. And the teams who are able to negotiate them get to kind of skate away pretty freely because they're not responsible. And so much of the revenue stream goes back to the clubs themselves, which is why whenever there's a deal like Miami's, we're shocked. And I don't know that we should be. We should be like, oh, this makes sense. You know, we're relying on public transit. They want to put it in a neighborhood that needs development. Um, We're going to minimize the blight of parking garages. And we're going to put the onus on the owners to actually try to turn this venue into a year-round profitable space. So what could possibly change? The question, I guess, becomes how how does America get out of this cycle? Well, you just need someone who's really dedicated to the place he came from, like David Beckham. I'm just kidding. But I mean, it is funny that it took David Beckham, this British international soccer star who's probably lived in a dozen cities in his life. His commitment to building this in Miami is so strong that he's going to basically pay to build it himself. If he had done the thing that all the NFL owners do, shop it around various counties and cities, he probably could have had a sweetheart deal. The sad thing is that the success story, quote unquote, of Miami, as you laid out earlier, is entirely predicated on them getting screwed so hard on stadiums earlier. It's like a fool me eight times sort of scenario. So I guess the lesson there is in order to um, you know get out from all of these bad deals. We just need a lot more of them. So every city feels the pain. I mean, you would have you would think that people would have learned their lesson by now. But Neil DeMoss on Field of Schemes just, um, you know, a couple weeks ago posted this story about how the Oakland A's owners claim that by moving their stadium four miles away to a different location in Oakland, it would generate $3 billion in economic impact. It's like, where do you find people? Over 10 years. (laughs) Where Not you, over a lifetime, <laughs> over 10 years. Like, where can you find economists who will sign on to this bullshit? I mean, it defies logic. Yeah, and I wonder if Oakland will fall for that, too, because Oakland is one of those cities that actually has been pretty, I think, sensible, which is one of the reasons that the Raiders got the hell out of there. Right. And a reason that the Warriors are relocating to San Francisco. Yeah, it's pretty sad, actually. If you're a good actor, you basically lose all your sports teams because there's a lot of cities out there who haven't had one of these deals in 15 or 20 years and are ready to jump in the pool again because they forgot what the temperature of the water was. Henry Grabar is a Slate staff writer. His story is, in Miami, David Beckham has wrought America's best stadium deal. Thank you, Henry. You got it. Thank you. 
That is our show for today. Our producer this week was Dan Bloom, and our intern is Max Cohen. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out the weekly interview show, I Have to Ask. It's hosted by our colleague Isaac Chotner. He talks to folks like Ben Rhodes, the Obama foreign policy advisor. He had uh, Ashley Parker, the Washington Post on there, Chuck Schumer, Chris Hayes. He's a great interviewer. You'll really enjoy it if you like our show, maybe even if you don't like our show. It's slate.com slash ask. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.